What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to this week's Down the Drive podcast. DownTheDrive.com is your home for everything Cincinnati Bearcats sports. While the Cincinnati football team might be off this week, I certainly am not. We at Down the Drive are not, and we are still churning out some great content. As of Wednesday, we're seven weeks away from the college basketball season beginning, or at least from Cincinnati's basketball season beginning. Check out my article That highlights as of Tuesday, 50 days until the season, 50 reasons to be excited about John Brandon and the new era. Also, a number of articles following up on the Miami, Ohio uh, victory on Saturday. This is our Ring the Bell uh, podcast episode, the 14th straight year. Incredible. 14 straight years of ringing the bell for Cincinnati. There's a bunch of content on the site, like what the world looked like the last time Miami beat Cincinnati. Actually, the last time that did happen. So actually a fun thing that our punter James Smith did on Twitter, Miami has never tweeted that they beat the Bearcats because Twitter didn't even exist the last time Miami won. Pretty pretty incredible. We have our weekly anger rankings, the follow-ups from the games, including 14 key plays in honor of the 14 straight years, Four things we learned, and then the instant reaction. Uh, There's also been a lot of talk about the future of the Miami series. So I gave my thoughts on what I think should happen, and I'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, I actually put out a part two edition this morning because a couple of football players from the 60s reached out, and they gave their thoughts. So I wanted to make sure that I was able to share those uh, because I do respect the history of Cincinnati, and I do respect... You know, the, the series as a whole and what the rivalry used to be. And speaking of that respect and the respect for history, my guest on this week's episode is Rick Minter, who coached Cincinnati for 10 years from 1994 to 2003. He also coached at Marshall for a couple of years, who Cincinnati, of course, plays next week in Huntington. So get his thoughts on, you know, the Bearcats and how far the program has come uh, from where they were when he was there back in the 90s. Uh, his thoughts on Marshall, what makes Huntington such a special place and such a difficult place to play. And I, I asked his thoughts as well about the Miami-Ohio series because, you know, like the players in the 60s, who better to give their input than him? Actually, a funny story about Rick Minter. The last time Cincinnati went to Huntington was 2008. I met Rick uh, the day after the game. My friends and I, the game was on a Friday night. My friends and I stayed on Saturday. We actually went to the cemetery, uh, the famous the famous cemetery. You know, the whole story about Marshall and, you know, I've seen that movie dozens of times. So we were just trying to check all that history stuff out. And Rick was at, Coach Minter was actually there with friends and family. So he was kind enough to give us a few minutes of his time and talk to us. So 11 years later, I got a chance to get, uh, get a formal interview out of him. So that was cool. Um, but yeah, Cincinnati beat Miami. I think at this point, heading into the off week, Bearcats are exactly where everyone thought they would be at two and one. Uh, exactly where we thought they would be record-wise, but I'm not sure about the level of play. I think you've seen the same issues and the same mistakes over and over again. And I think what we've learned through three games is that UCLA stinks. UCLA is worse than stinks. UCLA, I mean, they suck. They're they're probably the worst Power Five team, UCLA. Uh, Miami, Ohio, is, Miami is not very good, 
And we know that Ohio State is great. So we didn't learn. I feel like we haven't learned a ton from these three games, which is a little bit concerning. And I also feel like it's, you know, this happened last year too. Cincinnati just didn't play anybody good. And you just, you don't get to learn about your team. So they're fortunate enough to be two and one. Um, and I think there's just, it, the, to me, the off week comes at a good time because there's a lot to work on. I think, so the biggest thing that stood out to me from the Miami game was Desmond Ritter. A lot of, there were a lot of critics on Twitter on Saturday kind of calling for, you know, some people were calling for him to be benched. I think a lot of people were criticizing the way that he was playing. And I think the criticism is completely warranted. So I think there's two reasons why he's struggling. I think one is the offensive line is just terrible. And I think that there's a mental aspect of it. I think... You know, they lost 42 nothing to Ohio State, and I think that rattles your brain a little bit. I think you be he's there's no I don't know his full high school and middle school history, but there's no way Desmond Ritter has ever lost a football game like that. There's no way he's ever played that poorly in his life. And I think a performance like that and a a game like that for your team, I think it weighs on you. And I think he kind of carried that weight into the first half or at least the first quarter of this game. I think knowing that the offensive line isn't very good and you only have a few seconds to make a decision, I think that rattles you a little bit as well. But in addition to all of that, when he did have time, he wasn't always making the right reads. He was overthrowing his receivers. He was throwing it to the wrong receiver. There were a number of instances on Saturday against Miami where there was a clear receiver either down the sideline or over the middle that was wide open and he threw it to a different guy. So I think this, the off week will be good. He can clear his head, kind of move on from Ohio State, move on from this Miami first quarter, continue to work with the wide receivers, and certainly the Bearcats need to figure out what to do on that offensive line. They continue to commit costly penalties. There's never an opportune time for a penalty, especially these false starts and stuff, but they're happening on third and ones and third and shorts and holdings on, you know, long pass completions or long runs. So they're just, it's, you can overcome these mistakes against really bad teams like Miami and UCLA, but at some point in time coming up soon, like at Marshall or versus UCF or at Houston in the next three games, those are good teams that are near or at or above Cincinnati's level. Uh, Marshall might be, Marshall's around there, but the game's on the road. UCF is, you know, a notch or two above, and Houston's probably at where Cincinnati is. You can't make those mistakes and overcome them as easily in those games. So they've committed 30, they've had 31 accepted penalties. There were 16 penalties committed against Miami. Only 11 of them were accepted, but 31 penalties in three games is an insane number and you just continue to see the same mistakes over and over and you know one thought on Ritter and why I think the idea of benching him is kind of insane first of all when Cincinnati went four and eight Hayden Moore was not very good and he was never benched he came out in garbage time occasionally but he was never benched so you know that Luke Fickle was loyal to, at the time, a junior quarterback who he really had no emotional ties to. I mean, Ritter is his guy. I, ben Bryant might be good, but there's no guarantee that he's better. I don't think you can bench 
uh, Ritter for some for the unknown. I think what's important is that, and this what I prefer. Not that my opinion really matters or carries a lot of weight, but let Desmond Ritter figure it out, and you allow him to figure out how to play behind this offensive line. Let him learn through these mistakes and let him figure it out. This is. They need to figure out the offensive line, but for the most part, this is going to be the offensive line this year. This is not going to be a good offensive line. They're not just going to flip a switch, unfortunately. So they're going to have to learn to live with it, and he's going to have to learn to overcome it. And I don't think putting in Ben Bryant or benching Desmond Ritter is going to solve any issues. You know, one thing, one issue that they seem to solve a little bit is the running game got going a lot more. I would still like to see more out of Michael Warnia, that 73-yard touchdown run. But beyond that, he did just have 40 yards on 11 carries. So I, I think this is a product of the offensive line as well. And you know, before the Ohio State game, I was preaching establish the run to set up the pass. I think, I mean, I'm starting to think it should be the other way around. I think that they should be opening it up more. And they definitely took a lot more chances on Saturday. Ritter definitely threw a lot more deep balls and a lot more passes that were, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20 yards down the field. And I think if you do that, then you'll start to open up the run game because then you're starting to show that Ritter does have the arm strength to do it. But super pumped about the way that Warren played. He had his third three-touchdown game of his career. Um, Obviously the best game of, of the season for him. Defense stepped up. This is the same thing that they did against UCLA. Against UCLA, they came out in that first possession very sloppy, gave up big chunks of yards, and then after that, they locked down. So it was 10-0 after the first quarter, and coming into the second quarter, Miami had converted 10 of 10 red zone opportunities. Brian Wright forced a fumble on a sack. That was a pretty incredible play. It looked like he got shot out of a cannon on that play. Just came right up the middle untouched, and... It allowed Majay Sanders to recover, give Miami their first failed red zone attempt. It seemed like from there, Cincinnati finally got it going, but the defense really locked down. I was really impressed by Derek Forrest, who had nine tackles. Really impressive game for him. It seemed like every time you look up and you look at the pile of players, that number five was somewhere involved in that play. Um for Miami, I was impressed by the quarterback. I, I laughed a little bit when I realized that the quarterback's last name, that when I realized a few weeks ago that the quarterback's last name was Gabbert, and I made the connection that he was Blaine Gabbert's younger brother. But Brett Gabbert was impressive. He had an outstanding first half. I sort of fell apart in the second half as Cincinnati's defense was able to bring more pressure and able to rattle him a bit more and made those adjustments um, but he he could be trouble for the next couple of years. He could definitely, um, yeah, he could definitely be trouble. One other, th- and I want to talk about the future of Miami versus Cincinnati, but one other thought on this game is with four minutes to go, there's a really weird decision from Luke Fickle. It was fourth and goal uh, from about the 15-yard line. Fickle decided to go for it instead of kicking a field goal, given all the issues that we've had with the kicking game. Uh, Sam Crosa missed one against UCLA. He had one blocked against Ohio State. I would have loved to see them try and kick a field goal there just to kind of overcome some of those issues and give Crosa some confidence. So a little bit, a little bit of a weird decision. He sort of skated around that question afterwards. And 
Also, the jerseys looked awesome. I was skeptical about wearing red against the Red Hawks, but the throwback jerseys looked awesome. I hope they wear them again this season. I'm not sure what the plan is. And the field looked great, even though I think everyone knows that the timing of this is suspect. They did it because there's an FC, FC Cincinnati soccer game this week, but the field did look great. I was skeptical about that too, but field looked awesome. Jerseys looked awesome. And the students looked awesome, although I do have one gripe with the students, and I highlighted this in the Anger Rankings article this week. Please, if you're a student listening to this, I know I'm going to come across as that cranky old, get off my lawn old man, but there's no reason to be chanting those negative chants towards Miami. It's beneath us. It's beneath the students. It's beneath our team. Cheer positively for the Bearcats. If you want to boo the players... You can, I mean, if you want to say Miami sucks, that's fine. But the word and the chant that the students were doing is, and apparently it was happening during UCLA too, just inappropriate. It's just not necessary. And it, it's a bad look because it was very, it was loud. And you could very clearly make out that chant on TV. Yeah, just my, that's my little soapbox thought of the day. My other soapbox thought, soapbox thought of the day is the Miami series and the future of it. Obviously, after 14 straight wins, you just kind of start rolling your eyes, like what? What's next? Like, clearly there's a huge gap in talent between Cincinnati and Miami, and I know that for a long time the series served the purpose and it was super valuable. And the value for the series now is that we lost Pittsburgh and Louisville in the conference realignment. So this is Cincinnati's only real rivalry, only trophy game. We can't just. I mean, we could build the trophy and we can make up a game against Temple or Memphis or somebody, but it doesn't work that way. You can't just create a rivalry overnight. So it does from that purpose service standpoint, but there's just such a difference now. And Cincinnati is a clear level, maybe two above Miami that I don't know if Miami can ever win. And the problem that I have for Cincinnati is that the game is sort of beneath the school at this point that, there's nothing to gain from beating Miami. You have everything to lose playing this game. If Miami wins, it's a stunning upset. It makes their season. It could help them in recruiting. You know, some of, it could help them recruiting somewhere down the road where they're like, oh, well, we're the second best team in Ohio now. Now that we beat Cincinnati, they could put that little feather in their cap. Um, but it's just, it's not. You know, we didn't. I didn't learn anything from watching them beat a one and two team. And by the way, if you haven't seen this quote, they play at Ohio State next week. Coach Chuck Martin had a great quote where he said, "It's kind of like playing football at recess, except Ohio State has the first eighty-five picks." I got a, a kick out of that. I'm not sure that his players didn't. Some of those players are very good. They have they had a really good cornerback, um, Raymond, and I, I thought Gabbard played well, and a couple of good running backs that. Really impressed me. So they do have talent. Uh, I, I'll, be, I'll be rooting for them in the MAC just because it helps Cincinnati uh, to see them have a good record. But yeah, I wrote more about this rivalry on on downthedrive.com. I mean, basically my thought is that if we're going to keep playing this game, it should be in place of an FCS team because that's how I personally view Miami at this point, at the level of an FCS team. I don't think we should ever go to Oxford maybe once a decade. I don't think this game should ever be played at Paul Brown Stadium, and I wouldn't be upset if they didn't play it 
every single year because it opens up more scheduling opportunities for Cincinnati. So I wrote about that. I did get some feedback from some old school Bearcats who wanted to chime in. They wanted to be heard and they wanted it to be known that they're not in favor of ending this rivalry. They are in favor of making some adjustments down the road. So I respect that and I do respect their opinions. So make sure you check that out for for a little bit more context. Um, but I'm going to talk to Coach Rick Minter. Of course, Minter coached at Cincinnati for 10 years. He also recruited Gino Gadouli, who is now the, QB, now the QB coach. I want to ask him about that. I'll ask him about assignment Marshall and get a prediction from him for next Saturday's game. And I'm going to ask him uh, also his opinion on the Miami-Ohio series. I mean, a guy that obviously lived through it for 10 years. See what he thinks about it. I'm joined now by Rick Minter, the former coach of the Bearcats, coach in Cincinnati from 1994 to 2003. Coach, how are you this evening? Doing fine, thanks. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. I wanted to talk to you because Cincinnati plays Marshall next week. I know you have familiarity with both schools, but before that, I wanted to start with you. I know you were the defensive coordinator for Birmingham in what is now the defunct AAF, I'm curious what you're up to this fall and, and what your future looks like in coaching and football. Well, I certainly hope that I have a future in coaching, still have the passion, the drive, the desire, the opportunities. Uh, once we were all terminated on April the 2nd and 3rd, when the AAF went under, if you looked out into the college landscape and even the professional landscape, most of your jobs at that time are filled up. Uh, outside the XFL, starting to take off with coaching staffs. I had a couple of near misses of being hired on some of those staffs. But right now, I'm just kind of taking it easy, trying to follow the sports, both college and pro. And uh, my son works as a defensive back coach of the Baltimore Ravens. So that keeps me going up there uh, on a number of occasions, uh, following that team a little bit more closely than the other NFL clubs. So just trying to travel, stay with family. Uh, enjoy a little bit of a uh, take a breather here and I hope to get back into it shortly. Yeah, I hope you do. This is probably the first time in a very long, this has to be weird for you, right? Probably the first time in a long time you're home on Saturdays in the fall. Well, it has been a long time. Uh, If you've coached long enough, obviously there's coaches that are hired and coaches that are fired, so to speak, and you're going to end up with a few breaks in your lifetime. And uh, in 2007, after the uh, right before coming to Marshall, in fact, I was in between Notre Dame and what turned out to be Marshall. I set out in 2007, you know, ironically living in Cincinnati and getting very closely connected back into the Bearcat program at that time with Brian Kelly, first year on the job there at that time, doing a little bit of radio TV in terms of just connected to the program. So. Uh, it's happened just very sparingly, and you don't really like it to happen, but it did. So I'll keep my eyes forward, try to enjoy this fall, and uh, follow college football with a little bit closer eye on it, as well as the professional ranks. Yeah, that's great. And I know you mentioned Notre Dame. That's where you were before you got the job at Cincinnati. <clears throat> so how did that happen? You went from being the defensive coordinator for a couple of years in South Bend, 
Uh, how did you get the job at Cincinnati? Well, I think by the time <clears throat> I spent seven years at Ball State University, uh, from you know from before I got to Notre Dame, and I that's that was my second time to work for Lou Holtz. And once you become a defensive coordinator or a coordinator at Notre Dame, and if you do good work, most likely you're going to get the opportunity uh, to go prove yourself as a head football coach. Most of them get to get that opportunity. And so with certainly Lou's recommendation, uh, I applied for the job down there in Cincinnati. It was close to my children, which then lived in Muncie, Indiana. Their colors were red and black as I was superstitious. Uh, it was a little bit of a forgotten program. I looked forward to the challenge. And so I was fortunate enough to land the job after coordinating the defense at Notre Dame for two years, and, and we really did some good things there over a 10-year span. Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of that, part of those good things was going to bowl games. Um, you helped lead the Bearcats to the Humanitarian Bowl in 1997, first bowl game since 1950. What was that like right. for you? What was that like? for the school well you know you were entering the days of uh you know very heavy espn coverage and people you know were were following people's programs and we certainly wanted to get the monkey off our back we didn't want to be that team that people put up there on that graph that said the longest running college teams that have yet to go to a bowl game or have not been into a bowl game and if you really want to stay up with people and have your program grow each and every year. You need postseason play. We were in the newly formed Conference USA at that time, uh, currently where Marshall plays now, but uh, there was only one bowl tie-in to the league champion. And so that was uh, the chances of winning the league were certainly a challenge. And in, ironically, the year that we won in 97, we had a 7-4 and record. We were not the league champion, uh, but yet, our athletic director there did a nice job uh, kind of buying our way into that first bowl game. You just have to do things that, to get your program on the map. And so we went out on a limb a little bit as a university and got ourselves into that bowl game. We played Utah State, went out and made a nice showing. And then, of course, the program has somewhat been off and running. It dropped back for a couple of years after 97, then we got it back in 2000, 2001, 2002. But to go to that very, very first bowl game was an unbelievable thrill, uh, particularly to all the patrons of of UC Athletics that made that journey all the way out there, most of them for the first time in their lifetime. Yeah, I mean, you really, Cincinnati has been in a boom period, so to speak, for the last 20 years. You really helped put the school on the map, those four bowls, that bowl game in 97, and then three bowl games that followed, um, really doing a great job laying down the groundwork for the future of the program. And then obviously the transition from being independent into Conference USA. Yes, when I was there in 94, we joined the Liberty Bowl Alliance, which basically was still an independent status, but we still had the ability to play for a bowl game uh, in Memphis had we had the better record of those six teams in the alliance. We failed to do that. We finally got there when we formed Conference USA. We got to the 7-4 bowl record of 97. Very, very good football team. We had five players drafted off that NFL, you know, drafted off that football team into the NFL, which was as high as just about anybody on a given year. And then we 
took a couple of steps back, and then we got it going again in 2000 when we played, uh, uh, you know, bo- uh, the Motor City Bowl games back-to-back. We played Marshall one year. We played Toledo one year. And then in 02, we had really one of the most magical or almost magical years in UC history. We had a, a very good football team in 02. We played down at Paul Brown Stadium when we battled the Buckeyes of Ohio State almost to a near victory. It was a very tough loss for us. We went out to Hawaii, played to a one-point loss to a 10-1 team out there, and we still won the league championship or co-champ with TCU, which we had beaten the first game of the year. So it was kind of a a unique season. We ended up being a co-champ. We ended up in the uh, New Orleans Bowl down there against a very good North Texas State football team. So my last four years on the job, we did go to three bowl games. Uh, It was also in the fall of, you know, October of uh, 2003 when UC was invited officially into the Big East to begin play in 05. And so we were downtown there with all the hoopla going on about getting into the Big East. It was me. It was Bob Huggins in football. It was Bob Gorn, our athletic director. I don't think any of the three of us ever saw the Big East, but – but it was fun getting that program there. I still have great attractions for Cincinnati. My heart's there, and uh, I like to see them do well. But I've always managed to to, to, to fall in love, so to speak, with wherever I've coached. Uh, but my time at Marshall was uh, exceptional. Uh, but my time at UC while being the head coach probably marks the highlight of my career. Now, I want to ask you about your time at Marshall. I also want to ask you stories about Bob Huggins, but we can do that another time. Um, yeah. What was your favorite part about coaching the Bearcats? Well, number one, being the head coach. You know, I was a guy growing up uh, around guys like Lou Holtz and Monty Kiffin and all these kind of guys that were take-charge guys. And I just always wanted to run my own program, and I felt I was ready to do that at 40 years old when I got the UC job. And so Lou Holt's principles were written all over that program there at UC. Uh, it was a great town. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to have a family. Uh, so all that wrapped into one, being a head coach, helping build a program that had one winning season in the previous 13 years to try to bring it to some type of consistency, uh, get it to where it was presented itself into the Big East Conference, uh, put itself in position to have uh, millions of dollars of facility enhancements take place shortly after I left. So it was a it was a very very good time. I was in the prime of my life at 40 to 50, and uh, both personally and professionally, I enjoyed the city of Cincinnati and and the people of Cincinnati. So it was a great time. It really was. I have no regrets about being there, and uh, certainly take great pride now in what has transpired since I was there. So. Uh, I feel like those guys, and they'll tell you, they stand on my shoulders now, just like I stood on the shoulders of Mike Gottfried and Sid Gilman and all the other greats that have passed through there itself. But uh, I've really enjoyed following the progress of what the Bearcats have been able to achieve over these last 15, 16 years since I left. Yeah, well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, where the program is now compared to to where it was back in 2002 and 2003? (laughs) Well, I don't think you can fairly compare it. Uh, We were in Conference USA. We were at a school that had very, very uh, average, less than average facilities. Uh, 
and you know, and they had a lot of things to come since then. So now, every, all there's tremendous amounts of investments being taken place, not only in athletics on that campus, but campus wide. It is a beautiful uh, campus now in the city of Cincinnati. It's growing like crazy. It's got about forty five, forty six thousand people. It's uh, got tremendous facilities. They're in the American Conference, which is a little bit of a step back, particularly when you notice that Louisville got invited to the ACC a few years ago. But uh, my hope and wish is that they can sometime get back into a Power Five discussion. Uh, Until they do that, it'll be uh, same league, different name than it was years ago. Some of the same schools are in the American now. Uh, You know, we're in Conference USA back in those days. So the relativity of it hasn't changed a great deal. The level of play has changed. They get better and better athletes. They do a great job developing players there. Luke Pickle is the right guy for that job right now. But uh, it's it's a different job. Uh, it's familiar when I go there, certainly. But uh, it's a different job. It's a higher-level job now than it once was. And uh, I still look for great things out of that program. Awesome. And one of your top offensive players when you were there, Gino Gadui, he's the QB coach there now. Do you, do you ever stay in touch with him? Oh, yeah, I was just up on campus about, uh, oh, about three weeks ago. Went up to watch them practice, stopped by the offices, say hello. Uh, they were off-site training at uh, Camp Fire Ground, uh, which is the 21st year for them to go out there. We started that back in 1999, where they go off-site about 30 miles, 25 miles outside of town and uh, set up shop for this year. They set up shop for like three weeks. And... Uh, you know, Chuck and Brenda Hale do a great job out there at higher ground. And it's just, I mean, there's not an NFL training site that's better suited than what they have right there. There's not a college team in America that wouldn't die to have what the Bearcats go to every year for training camp. But uh, while out there, of course, I've sat and visited with Gino, and I'm, I know pretty much all the coaches there. Luke Pickles a great job, does a great job. Uh, Marcus Freeman on defense, Mike Denbrock on offense. I've got a connection with a lot of those guys down through the years, but uh, Luke's done a good job of uh, welcoming me to come around and visit every now and then, and and, uh, he's a good choice for that job. And uh, I see a lot of similarities in myself in what he's doing right now. He's a defensive-minded guy. He's a tough guy. He's out of the bloodline of Urban Meyer, Earl Bruce, Lou Holtz. We kind of run the program very similarly. But – no, Gino was probably our most marquee recruit when I was there. And it was a set of circumstances, you know, when Hal Mummy, I was reminded last Saturday night watching the Kentucky game on television because I've, I've coasted what seems to be now all the regional schools up there in the Midwest. But I was watching Kentucky, was reminded when Hal Mummy uh, got into his issue there. Gino Caduli had already committed to Kentucky, and we got him to not sign on signing date because it happened right right before signing dates when Al got into trouble. And uh, we ended up kind of re-recruiting him all over again. And at that stage, he uh, Gino came in, started the second game of his college career, played the rest of the – he played for me for three years, and then, of course, D'Antonio one year. But I would still put Gino in a class that he he's probably the best quarterback that's ever played there. They've had some great ones. They've had guys that maybe put up even more yards since him. But I was I was kidding him the other day when I was watching watching him coach the quarterbacks and I can see him 
in these quarterbacks now that I watch him coach them. I, I whispered in his ear, I said, Gino, I'd still pick you above all these other arms right now. I bet he can still <laughs> get out there and, and throw that ball because he was he was a big-time player in our conference and in our city, and he did a great job, and I'm happy he's back there. I love it. Yeah, it's the next Friday or next Saturday, Cincinnati plays at Marshall. First time going to Huntington since 2008. You were the defensive coordinator that year. You were there for two years. Yes. Tell me about Marshall. What makes Huntington so awesome and so special? And I know that Marshall's won 80% of the games in that Joan C. Edwards Stadium. I mean, what makes it so special and so difficult to play there? Well, I tell you the funny story. Back in, uh, I was sitting out, like I said, in 2007 and looking for a job, as I will be this December, January. And uh, I was watching the movie Marshall. It had only been out about a year. It was down on HBO. And I really just sat one night in a hotel room in January watching this movie. And I knew about Marshall, of course, because we had played him in a Motor City Bowl. You were 130 or 40 miles from Cincinnati, so you knew about Marshall. I had just never spent much time at Marshall. And so I'm watching this movie, and it's certainly it's an emotional tearjerker down, you know, with the results of the movie. And uh, I'm saying to myself, seriously, hey, I could work there someday. I think that would be a cool place to work. I think the passion in that city that follows that team would be cool to be a part of. And I mean, fast forward about three weeks, and I'm the defensive coordinator at Marshall. And so uh, there's a little bit of a premonition there. When I get down there and I get to know more and more of the townspeople, you you know more and more about the history of the uh, fatal plane crash that happened back in 1970. You learn the history of the program, how it rose from the ashes, and how Bobby Pruitt and those guys, Jim Donnan, got the program going uh, through all the great quarterbacks. But the, the city and, the, and the, the, the stadium is a cool stadium. The Edwards Stadium is a cool place to play. But that city still has such a, a reverence and yet a spirit behind that football team dating all the way back now, pushing 50 years uh, to when that plane crash had that uh, fatal ending. And it's just a, it's a very, very nice place. It's a quaint downtown. Uh, it's a place where students can go and have a good time. But I really, really enjoyed my two years there. I mean, getting to know more and more of the townspeople, the fact that one of my friends I now knew down there, he lost both of his parents on that plane crash. So it was just such a, a passionate place to, uh, to coach and be a part of. We had a down year my first year, 2008. And, yes, we did play against the Bearcats. Uh, Brian Kelly, my young son, Jesse, was on that coaching staff that year. Uh, so that was kind of cool at that stage to coach against him. And then our second year, <clears throat> 2009, we rallied to have a 6-6 season, uh, which got us a bowl game and at least uh, a better ending, as it turned out, as we made a coaching change and yet still got a bowl bid. And I took the team to the bowl game as they dismissed Mark Schneider, the head football coach, and we were able to win that game. And I don't think Marshall, you could correct me, I don't think Marshall – has lost a bowl game since that bowl game. You know, we won that one, and I don't even think they've lost one since that time. I mean, they've won like no. 10 or 12 straight. Yeah. Nope. Since that Little Caesars Bowl, there's been six straight bowl wins for Marshall. Yeah. So yep. you really, you laid the groundwork at Cincinnati, and you laid the groundwork at Marshall also. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I enjoyed my stay at Marshall. I really did. They had great kids. We, we played good defense, particularly that second year there. And uh, uh, we were as good as anybody in the Conference USA. And uh, we went 6-6, six and six, like I said. We weren't a dynamic offensive team. We were just a solid team, but we were exceptional on defense. We had uh, Albert McClellan, who went on to play for the Ravens for a good nine or ten years. We had uh, some other good guys. We had uh, C.J. Spillman, who played for a few years in the league. Uh, there's been a lot of talent come through that university that's ended up in National Football League. Benny Curry. You know, so we coached, what, three guys right there on defense that played in the league. Do you have a prediction for next Saturday? Who wins between Cincinnati and Marshall? I think it'll be a hard-fought game. I would not sell. Uh, I would not sell Marshall short. I would think that Cincinnati will have a slight edge, but uh, I was impressed with the way Marshall went on the road and played out at Boise uh, in a hostile environment for sure. But now they have the Cats at home. I take the Bearcats, you know, in a close ball game, but uh, it would not surprise me whatsoever for Marshall to win because of the. Uh, the great atmosphere in the stadium of, upon which they play, and, and Doc Holliday's done a tremendous job there. Yeah, Holliday's a really good coach. I was watching that Boise State game, too. That guy, Isaiah Green, is a really tough quarterback. Oh, he's, he's a good player. I don't know all the kids' names on either team, but I, I've seen them both play. And uh, I, I think Marshall will certainly compete well with Cincinnati. I was watching Miami play uh, Cincinnati last week on television and uh, Miami got off to a 10 nothing lead before the Bearcats finally began to pull away and I know Marshall had its hands full with Ohio U as they always do it's a rival game but uh, uh, I think it'll be a tight ball game I think it'll be exciting you know exciting game to watch both teams offensively do a lot of similar things they're both well coached on defense they both have great athletes I think there'll be a good little following come down from Cincinnati to follow the Cats, so there'll be an electric atmosphere, most likely a sold-out stadium. Uh, it'll be a fun game to watch on television if I can't get there. I'm glad you brought up Miami last week. There's been a lot of discussion amongst the Cincinnati fan base about what to do with this game. Obviously, Cincinnati just won their 14th straight. I know it's a series that dates 100. It goes back 124 years. Obviously, you were part of it winning a handful of games against them. What did that yep. rivalry mean to you when you were there? And if you were in charge, what would you do? Would you continue to play them every year and go up to Oxford every year or every two years? How would you handle that series? Well, it's you got mixed emotions on it because back then the programs were a little bit more equal. And it was a rival game. I mean, dating all the way back number of years. Uh, I, I used to have the argument of how can it be called a rival game when there's not sellout tickets in demand for the game? In other words, to me, it was a yearly game. I, I'm not trying to downplay the rival, you know, the rivalry word, but I believe when you have a rival, everybody in town wants to see the game. Everybody in the region wants to see the game. It's a sellout game. And that has not been necessarily the case. They've certainly drawn well, but it is a rival. You know, when you talk about a yearly team, they play each other all the time. The the football issue now goes all the way back to what it was with Bob Huggins when I was there. 
because, again, for years they played Miami every year. Once Hugs got that thing going on the national level every year, he wanted out of that game. One, same reason. There wasn't a whole lot of people wanting to watch that game. It didn't make any money for them, and it was just a drag on their schedule when they wanted to go play other teams, and you don't gain anything by it, but you have everything to lose by playing it. And football is kind of getting into that same position. You know, you don't want to empower Miami by having them win out on a recruit or two if you slip up and lose that game, but you're now supposed to win that game every year, which they have done a great job of for 14 years. So you could say, well, keep playing it, but you better keep winning it or get rid of it. And, you know, you'd offend a whole lot of the old timers for a few years. But uh, there's an argument both ways. It is a rival. It is a natural. uh, But I would be – what I wish is that there would be about 60,000 people in the tri-state area that wanted to see that game every year, that they would demand to see that game. Then you'd move it to Paul Brown Stadium every year and play it down there every year as a neutral site game. That's the that's the perfect scenario of it, is for the fans to demand you play it by wanting to sell sixty to seventy thousand tickets. But right now the cats have to go up there; they don't sell out. And when they come down to to Cincinnati, they don't sell out. And when they go to Paul Brown, they have a good solid crowd. So it's getting into that argumentative stage of as to what value it brings to them. Yeah, it's definitely been a hotly contested conversation i appreciate your insights as someone that obviously lived through it and i appreciate all the background and everything on both cincinnati and marshall coach i really appreciate the time um any last thoughts well i tell you this thinking about miami and i was reminded of it when i was watching the pittsburgh Steelers play on television two days ago we when we played miami it was certainly more equal just due to talent distribution but it was a, certainly a challenge when they had this little quarterback over there named Ben Roethlisberger for my <laughs> last three years on the job. So when you add up my wins, you add up my losses. Old Ben put three of them on me, okay? Could be why I'm sitting down here today and still not the coach there. But, uh, no, they've each had their own great players come through their programs, none better than Roethlisberger. And John Harbaugh is a friend of mine with the Ravens, of course, and he's part of that you know, cradle of coaches over there. So I'm very happy that he went to that school too. So it's a great institution. But I enjoyed Cincinnati tremendously. I enjoyed my time at Marshall. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Coach. Really appreciate it. Enjoy some relaxing time off this fall, and best of luck to you on the coaching search at the end of the season. All right, fellas. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. You bet. All right, so just to wrap this up, just a couple of quick thoughts on the AAC. Last week was supposed to be a big week. Cincinnati ended up going 2-1, and one, or technically 2-2 two and two in games against the Power Five. I don't really count Tulsa. I don't think anyone gave Tulsa a fighting chance against Oklahoma State, although maybe we should have because they led 21-20 uh, to 20 at the half, and then, of course, Oklahoma State turned it on and won 40-21, so good Good first half effort, at least, for for Tulsa. But Houston, disappointing, difficult loss on Friday night, losing to Washington State. Temple, 
a huge victory over Maryland. Maryland came into that game with a lot of momentum, had scored 143 points in their first two games. They scored 79 and 63, respectively. Respectively, so Temple won 20 to 17, and really that 17 came about because Temple took an intentional safety as time ran out. So not a good game for Maryland. This Temple team just continues to impress me every single year. They're just they're always a tough team. Doesn't matter who the coach is because the coach changes every two years anyway. Um, always a tough-minded football team, and they always find ways to win games like this. So really good win for Temple. And then how about UCF? They just blew the doors off of Stanford. They won 45-27. This was supposed to be the biggest non-conference game they ever played. And I'm just getting a little bit sick of the UCF slander. The response to the score was consistently Stanford stinks. Stanford is bad. This is a bad Stanford team. Wake me up when you play a real team. I I, I don't know. I mean, why do they need to play a real team? When is Clemson going to play a real team this year? Huh? Look at the ACC. I mean, look how bad the ACC ACC is. I know Clemson played Texas A&M in a non-conference game, and we'll see how good Texas A&M does this year. But beyond them, Clemson's playing 11 bad teams. So I know Clemson... The response to this is going to be like, oh, well, Clemson's just a good team. We just know they're a good team. UCF's a good team, too. They've won 28 of 29. This is what I kept saying last year, and I'm going to say it again. They've won 28 of 29. People, the response to that is they haven't played anybody. But then how come nobody else has won 28 of 29? If it's that easy, if so many of these other uh, group of five teams are playing nobody, how come they can't? How come Boise State hasn't won twenty-eight of twenty-nine? How come Appalachian State or Fresno State haven't won twenty-eight of twenty-nine games? Because it's not that easy. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing UCF come to Cincinnati on October fourth. I'm starting to have some serious questions about that game, um, as opposed to earlier in the season where I felt a little bit more confident. But they do play Pittsburgh this week. That should be a fun game. Pittsburgh, uh, Pat Narduzzi, former Cincinnati defensive coordinator. He coached under Mark D'Antonio when he was here from 2004 to 2006. If you never, if you didn't see what happened in the Penn State game, you should. It was 17 to 10, four minutes ago, and he opted to kick a field goal instead of going for the touchdown. Naturally, the field goal was blocked and missed because that's karma. And his explanation after the game was that they needed two scores to win, even though he needed one score to tie the game, to put themselves into a position to get the second score. So I'm not sure. I mean, Pat Narduzzi coached at Cincinnati. He certainly didn't didn't get a degree from Cincinnati. I don't know where he did, but uh, he might want another degree because he's not very good at math. So, yeah, so UCF, Temple getting the big wins. South Florida finally got a win, snapping their long losing streak. They did beat South Carolina State, so nothing really to brag about. SMU continued their hot start. Texas State is nothing special, but SMU is 3-0. And Tulane rolled through Missouri State 58-6. And Navy won the first AAC game of the year, 42-10. I'm really looking forward to the second AAC game of the year. It's on Thursday night between Houston and Tulane. I think this Tulane team is sneaky good. They're playing at home. Houston coming off that loss. I'm going to take Tulane. I think they make a statement here, and I think it's going to come down to Tulane and Memphis in 
the AAC West, I think that those two teams are the two best. It's interesting to see Houston. They're one and two right now. The losses are to Washington State and Oklahoma. Obviously, respectable losses. Cincinnati plays them the week after UCF, so that kind of looms as a large game for both teams. Um, some other American action this week before I wrap it up. Obviously, Cincinnati's off. UConn plays at Indiana. Never thought I'd see the day that Indiana's a 27-point favorite in football, but <laughs> but here we are. They are. Uh, UCF at Pittsburgh, like I said. SMU 3-0. They've beaten North Texas. They've beaten Texas State. They beat Arkansas State. Uh, and they go to TCU. So, big opportunity for them to pick up a win against the top 25 team. Tulsa hosts Wyoming. Wyoming did beat Missouri in week one. So, not a game that Tulsa can take lightly. Temple goes on the road to Buffalo. Buffalo actually beat them in Temple week two last season. And, yeah, East Carolina plays William & Mary. So that's it for, for the AAC this week. A lot of exciting top 25 games. In general, you have Michigan, Wisconsin. I will be pulling for the Badgers to jump around in that one. The Notre Dame-Georgia game on Saturday night will be can't miss. I'm actually working on an awesome article. It'll go live either Wednesday or Thursday about Cincinnati's connections to some of the top 25 and to really as many games as possible in week four. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for all the other content. The 2009 anniversary celebration content launches this week. And yeah, just stay, keep refreshing. Basketball season's coming up soon. So that content will start to ramp up. We'll bring back our returning player refresher series that we did for football. We'll do that for basketball. Phil Neifer's on top of that. Clayton Trudeau will continue to preview our opponents every week in football. And make sure you're following on Instagram at DownTheDriveUC. Follow on Twitter at DownTheDrive. You can follow me personally on Twitter at M-S-S-C-H-N-E-I-D. I am Mike Schneid. Thank you all for listening. Huge thanks to Rick Minter for his time. Hope you all enjoyed. Go Bearcats.